a researcher drops a mouse into a cage. For the next four weeks, that mouse lives all alone, with only food and water as company. After the fourth week, a guest arrives, a new mouse. The first mouse, the lonely mouse, cautiously checks out the guest. Who are they? Why are they here? Suddenly, the lonely mouse stands on its back legs and shakes its tail. The lonely mouse chomps down on the visitor and that one bite kicks off a full-on brawl. The researchers see the same pattern of aggression repeatedly. And here's the key. The longer the mice are isolated, the more violently they react when a visitor is dropped into their cage. I mean, I'm mad. I've been mad. I'm one of the angry, you know, voters that they've been discussing. Fight each and every one of these battles to the death so that we get full transparency in the process. And we are kicking their ass. What does this research mean for us humans? When we are lonely, how does it affect the way that we see the world? I'm Damien Bradfield, and this is Influence, a podcast by WeTransfer about the hidden gems, hotspots, and dark alleys in the world of communication. Today on the show, we speak with the economist and author Norina Hertz. In her latest book, The Lonely Century, Norina writes about those lonely mice as a way to talk about the negative effects that social isolation has on society. Norina started writing the book well before the pandemic, but it could not be more prescient. In it, she talks about how loneliness is increasing globally, how its rise in the West is tied to neoliberalism, and how long-term loneliness wipes out a person's capacity for empathy. Ultimately, she imagines a future with more connection and offers up some suggestions for how we can get there. Thanks, Norina, for joining us. Do I say your name correctly? I think you did it correct. I think I did. I just wanted to double check. <laughs> We're going to talk mainly about loneliness, unsurprisingly, I presume. Well, loneliness is on pretty much all of our minds right now, a year into a shared experience of collective isolation, but also because I've just written a big book on the subject. One of the things that you really sort of drive home in your book is that loneliness is not an individual problem. Um, and that there are all sorts of societal factors that contribute to our combined loneliness. And in turn, that, that loneliness is responsible for all sorts of other societal problems. Is this a new issue that we're dealing with? Has there always been loneliness? Why has it suddenly become such a problem that we're all confronted with it now? COVID excluded. Let's pretend that COVID isn't happening. And you're right to say that because even before the pandemic, this was the lonely century with one in five Americans lonely, often or always, one in five millennials saying that they didn't have a single friend at all, 40% of office workers lonely at work. So even before the pandemic, this was the lonely century. We don't have scientific quantitative data kind of going back centuries, but we do have data going back to about the 1970s. And what we do see is that really from the 1980s onwards, a steady increase in people feeling lonely, which really kind of shoots up even more so this century. So we can look at trends of loneliness even before the pandemic struck. 
I would have assumed that this was much more of a, a male issue. But what I understand is it's pretty evenly split, male, female, and perhaps shifted through the pandemic to be more skewed towards females. In all markets and all countries, are we seeing pretty much the same sort of statistics coming back? Or is it different between, I don't know, Europe and the US or Asia and the US? So loneliness is not exclusively a Western phenomenon. But what we do know is that the more individualistic a country is, the more likely its citizens are to feel lonely. Uh, the thing is that over the past few decades, most countries have become more individualistic. We, we even see this in Chinese pop song lyrics, which since the 1980s, we see collectivist nouns like we, us and our steadily supplanted by words like I, me and myself. This is also a trend we see in the West, but it's fascinating that we're seeing it in Chinese pop song lyrics as well. As other societies and other parts of the world have become increasingly individualistic, we're also seeing burgeoning loneliness crises there as well, with very significant loneliness crises now as far afield as China, India, South Africa. In terms of gender, I was interested to see if there was a gender split. And yes, you are absolutely right. I didn't find one, although we do know that during the pandemic, women have disproportionately become lonelier. I think the other thing that was surprising initially with my research is when we typically think about loneliness, we often think about it being something which predominantly affects elderly people. And actually, it's the young who are the loneliest. And young you define as? Under 25-year-olds who are the loneliest one of the jumping off points for doing this research was the fact that so many of my students were coming into my office and in office hours confiding in me that they felt lonely and isolated. And I hadn't seen this 10 years ago or 15 years ago. You know, it felt like something new was going on and the scale felt very significant. Is that because 10 years ago, people didn't feel able to talk about loneliness? That is a legitimate challenge for anyone kind of looking at these type of emotional issues. Is it just that people didn't talk about it before? You know, have we got mental health crises or did people just not talk about depression, anxiety? The stigma about speaking about loneliness actually you know, pretty much existed until this year and the pandemic, I would argue, because I think admitting you were lonely was a pretty stigmatised thing to do. <laughs> we couldn't really get away from it this year though, could we? <laughs> No, now we're all just going, yes, I feel lonely. I mean, in the United States, in the most recent survey, I've looked at 50% of Americans are saying they feel lonely. So, you know, with one in two people feeling lonely, of course, we're talking about it much more. Interestingly, the research on loneliness, I mean, it makes sense. It never asks as bluntly, are you a lonely person? You know, it asks kind of a whole host of questions to establish that. So maybe that at least from the 70s, helps make us feel, well, this isn't just about how people are reporting using a particular word. Because loneliness, I mean, doesn't just make people sad. I mean, it can be incredibly detrimental for your health, right? Perhaps you could talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of health. So when we think about loneliness, we typically think of the toll it's taking on our mental health. And, th and that is significant and real. We know that loneliness is linked to increased rates of depression, increased rates of anxiety, and at the extreme, increases in suicide rates. Less talked about is the toll that loneliness exacts on our physical health. 
yeah, the research is very clear on this. It's significant because as humans, we were never designed to be alone. And so when we are in a state of loneliness, it's almost like an alarm system goes off in our bodies, telling us, you know, shrieking at us, don't be alone, go and find your um, tribe, go and find people to hunt and gather with. So this alarm system goes off in our body, which is manifest in terms of our blood pressure going up, our heart rate going up, our levels of cortisol, our stress levels in our body going up, all of these signaling, you know, stop being in this state. The trouble is in contemporary life, we stay in this state for protracted periods and a protracted state of loneliness, um, even you know, relatively short periods of loneliness takes a physical toll to the extent that if you're lonely, you're 30% more likely to die prematurely, you're 29% more likely to get heart disease, you're 32% more likely to get a stroke, with loneliness being thought to be as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Do you think it would be better to be lonely or be in a terrible marriage? Well, that speaks to the fact that you can be lonely around other people. So being around other people is no guarantee that you're not going to be lonely. And one of the loneliest things, I'm sure, is being in an unhappy marriage. We do talk about being lonely in a crowd, of course, as well. So it's important to differentiate between the active, positive choice of being on your own and being alone, which is um, a state of being where you have agency and you're choosing it. I'm a writer. I spend a lot of time on my own. I like being on my own. I'm happy on my own. But that's different to feeling lonely. Feeling lonely is about craving connection and it not being met. And, And I define it as craving connection, not only with friends and family, but also craving connection with your fellow citizens, craving connection with your government, craving connection with your employer and not having and feeling that you are disconnected from them. So for me, loneliness is personal, but it's also an existential state of being. It's technological, economic, environmental, as well as born from the choices and decisions we make about how to lead our own lives. And it's also, as I found in my research, bad for democracy itself, because as I found, there is a link, a clear link actually, between the rise of right-wing populism across the globe and loneliness. Of course, not everyone who's lonely votes for a politician at the extremes, but what we know is that when we look at bodies of people who are voting for populist parties, extremist parties, a disproportionate number of those are lonely. There's this stat in your book about Trump voters being twice as likely as Cruz voters to have never participated in any community activities like sports teams or book clubs or parent-teacher orgs. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, and I interviewed many right-wing populist voters in my research in America and France, in um, Italy, and one thing that really came across very clearly from their stories was their loneliness and how they were finding community in these populist movements. Right. And in conspiracy theory, right? And that's also a very strong correlation between the two things, the rabbit hole of conspiracy theorists and QAnon, um, very closely associated with loneliness, I think, and these the same groups. 
Definitely. And there is actually kind of, you know, very solid academic research, which shows that when people feel lonely, they are more prone to believing in conspiracy theories, but also they're likely to be seeking community wherever it can be found. And you're absolutely right. And if we think about what do the people who stormed the Capitol, the QAnon believers, the um, GameStop Redditors have in common, a disproportionate number of these people are definitely lonely and feeling lonely. In your book, you talk about neoliberalism a lot, or at least in the beginning, and being one of the biggest factors contributing to this epidemic. Can you give us some background here as to what that means? So this is not a critique of capitalism per se that I'm issuing. What I'm saying is that since the 1980s, what we've seen is a very particular type of capitalism take hold. One promulgated by Margaret Thatcher in the United Kingdom and Ronald Reagan in the United States was a form of capitalism that really focused very much on the individual and put the pursuit of self-interest at the heart of economic objectives at the expense of the collective interest. An economic ideology that not only had ramifications in terms of economic outcomes, which, as we know by now, certain groups within society benefiting significantly more than certain other groups, leaving vast swathes of the population feeling left behind and marginalised, because in economic terms, they had been. But more fundamentally, neoliberalism in all of us really created or valorised a particular mindset a mindset in which we came to see ourselves as competitors rather than collaborators, as hustlers rather than helpers, as takers rather than givers. This was seen as the right, rational, pragmatic thing to do. To focus on the I rather than the we wasn't a byproduct of neoliberalism. In many ways, it was the very essence of neoliberal capitalism. And of course, a world in which you know we're focusing on our own short-term self-interest rather than what's good for the collective, a mindset in which we are focused on I rather than we, was inevitably going to lead to an outcome in which we felt disconnected from others and more on our own. In um, Adam Curtis's recent documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Mind, he refers to the, um, the move to the suburbs in the 50s and 60s in America as being one of the sort of catalysts towards some of the things I think you're talking about now, where suddenly became, people became very isolated and it led to this rise of conspiracy theory. Can we trace it back further than the 70s to perhaps 50s, 60s in that suburban movement or even beyond? Yeah, and of course, loneliness existed before. And you're right. You know, we have those beautiful paintings of Edward Hopper as documenting the lonely office worker. So, yes. And of course, Marx wrote about alienation and, you know, the idea of the work of being alienated, disconnected. So it's not a brand new phenomenon, for sure. The way we live, you know, living in isolated spaces, I would argue that Today's cities, as well as um, suburbs, are distinctly lonely. These have been factors. It's just what we're seeing and what we've been seeing over the past few decades is an acceleration of many of the drivers, plus also some new, some brand new drivers that didn't exist back then. Such as? The most obvious one is our smartphones, really. 
you know, we see this especially amongst the young where we can see very, very clearly a significant rise and steep rise and continuous rise in loneliness from about 2010 when smartphone usage amongst teenagers became ubiquitous and really moving in lockstep with smartphone penetration amongst this age group and social media usage. Now, of course, it could be coincidental. So I wanted to really dig into that as part of my research to understand the extent to which social media and our smartphones were playing a role in today's loneliness crisis and why it was so acute. And I began my research very agnostic. I came to realize and really digging into the academic research was that it does clearly play a role and that it's a net negative when it comes to how connected people feel. Social media has led many new problems on top of that, partly because young people, teenagers and their experiences of social media, it's very easy to feel that everyone's more popular than you. So in relative sense, it's easy to feel that you have less friends when you're establishing or um, gauging your worth on the basis of how many likes you have or retweets or comments, or when you're scrolling on your feeds and you're seeing other people who seem to be having fun with friends and you're not. You know, one girl, Claudia, told me about how her friends had told her they weren't going out after school, but she was in her room and she was scrolling on her feed and she saw them hanging out without her. And she felt so excluded, so alone, so invisible that she hid in her room for a week. The shame of exclusion becomes public and heightened. And the adults in a child's life may often not even be aware that this is, of course, going on, but also excluding because of the high levels of abuse that young people are experiencing on social media. 64% of UK college students have experienced abuse on social media. One in three 18 to 24-year-old women in the United Kingdom have experienced abuse on Facebook And then even with all those insights, it was hard to be definitive about whether social media really was making people feel lonely until about two years ago when there was a seminal study conducted at Stanford University. And it was a real gold standard of a study. They had 1,500 students who were in a control group. They were told to use Facebook as usual. The other 1,500 were told to stop using Facebook for two months. And the researchers tracked what happened. And they found that the group that stopped using Facebook did significantly more in person with friends and family. We know that in-person relationships are higher quality. And also, significantly, they felt happier and less lonely. And there have been a number of studies since then that have replicated that, showing that when people take time out of social media, they feel less lonely and happier and more connected. Do you use social media? You know, when I'm writing, I really stay off social media. The irony, and I'm aware of it, is that with a book out, especially during a global pandemic, when you're not meeting your readers face to face, I am using social media. And I am aware of the addictive nature of the beast because, you know, even having written this book, um, being so cognizant of the fact that. I'm craving that dopamine hit. It's very hard actually to stop yourself reaching out for your phone once you're once you're embedded in that cycle of chasing the retweet or like. Right. And I feel myself, I feel myself reaching out for my phone and I literally have to move my phone so that it's not in arm's reach 
in the evenings so that I am present with my partner and family. And I do try once a week to stay off all my devices so that so that I'm properly present with those around me. And what about businesses um, and the impacts of loneliness? Can businesses play a role in this? Absolutely. You know, when we have figures, even before the pandemic, that 40% of office workers were lonely, this clearly is a business issue, especially when we know that loneliness is bad for his business, given the links with productivity, motivation and turnover. So definitely a role that businesses should play really very pragmatically as a matter of commercial interest. And some of the fixes are quite straightforward, although they are predicated with people physically being in a room together. For example, eating together. That is a really well-proven way of employees feeling not only more bonded to each other, but performing better. There was fascinating research done with firefighters in Chicago, and the researchers wanted to understand why certain companies of firefighters outperformed others. And what they found was that companies of firefighters who ate together not only felt more bonded, but performed twice as well as companies that didn't. Even taking breaks at the same time. But businesses, I think, can do something else and should be doing something else. The other byproduct of the last few decades is that within companies, as within society, qualities like competitiveness and determination have been hypervalorized at the expense of qualities like caring for each other and compassion and kindness. And I would argue that companies would be well served were they to give more weight to these, what we might think of as softer qualities. One company that does do this is the global tech company Cisco. And they have a scheme whereby anyone up and down the company, so from the cleaner to the CEO, can nominate anyone else in the company for a cash reward of between $100 and $10,000 for being particularly nice or kind or helpful. And Cisco, you know, just last week, Forbes issued their list of the best companies in the world to work for. And yet again, Cisco was right at the top of that list, voted for by its employees. Its turnover levels are significantly below the industry average. So, you know, encouraging a culture of care and kindness actually has really clear ramifications in terms of how engaged and how connected your employees feel which positively impacts your bottom line. The difference that we've seen in the last few years has been that focus on shareholder value, which has caused an awful lot of the issues that we're talking about. But what about the future for work? Because um, returning to work is li- unlikely, in my opinion, to mean returning to the office, you know, two or three days a week. Do you see a transformation in the office space? I'm at least optimistic that the idea of going to an office where people don't take a laptop and they don't take a phone into a meeting and sit behind it pretending to listen but actually engage and have one or two days a week where they're really engaged would be quite an attractive place to go and actually meet. I look forward to the idea of offices transforming into meeting spaces or talking houses, you know, as opposed to the office because most people with a laptop in, let's say, where you live or where I live can work from home quite adequately um, and that the spaces we need should come together should be these sort of talking houses. Have you, in your research, have you seen movement into that direction? I think from my research of the companies that were most successful with hybrid work models pre-pandemic, 
you know, one thing that's clear is that they had set days where everyone came into the office. And I think that is really quite critical. Even if you're not all going in five days a week, even if it's three days a week that you're going in, you're going in the same days because otherwise you don't have these opportunities to be together and connect. Another thing that came out of my research was how the traditional contemporary um, office arrangements of the open plan office were inimical to a sense of connectedness you know, ostensibly designed to help bring people together and be the place for people to collaborate. The traditional open plan office, it turns out, has delivered the exact opposite. Um, I've worked in open plan offices. You know, I know that my strategy for dealing with the noise and the distraction was to put my noise cancelling headphones on and keep my head down. And it turns out I was not alone. There's Harvard Business School research where they tracked Um, a company which moved from offices and cubicles to open plan. And they found that people communicated far less in person with each other in those setups than they had beforehand and much more by email and messaging systems. We know that the old office layout that's become dominant in recent years hasn't been delivering in terms of connection and collaboration. So there is a real opportunity now to rethink the office, of course, much more generally. I think the idea that we shouldn't be in the office, which some companies are now promulgating, the idea that this is the end of the office, actually is really mistaken and short-sighted, especially given what we know about lonely workers and the impact this has on productivity. But it does provide an opportunity to rethink the physical space um, when people get together. And also, as you rightly say, rethink the norms and the social norms of how we behave in offices Difficult to navigate will be those situations where some people in the meeting are at home and some people are in the office, because it's actually very hard to have parity in a room if you're the person on the screen. And so I think um, ensuring that people are physically in the space at the same time will be really essential. I just want to ask you one more question. Is there a market, is there a country where you feel they're really being progressive and they're tackling this issue well and that we could perhaps look at and reference going forwards? Yes. The UK introduced the Minister of Loneliness a couple of years back and Japan has recently introduced a Minister of Loneliness as well. Um, I actually don't think loneliness should be put in a ministerial bucket. I think it is an outcome of so many government decisions that it needs to be looked at much more comprehensively. And there is a government that has been doing just that. And that is um, Jacinda Ardern's government in New Zealand, which last year introduced the well-being budget, which is essentially the government saying we're not only going to look at traditional measures like gross domestic product and growth when we're determining our policies, but we're also going to look at metrics like how lonely our citizens feel how connected they feel to each other, how much they trust each other, and evaluate and decide our policies and our budgetary allocations on the basis of how they will maximise um, those indicators as well. I mean, New Zealand you know, has been an exemplar um, over the past year in terms of how they've handled the pandemic. And um, this is another example where they seem to be really leading the way and where we can learn a lot from. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you to Norina Hertz for keeping us company. 
Influence is hosted by me, Damian Bradfield. Our producer is Rachel Swaby with editing from Elise Hugh and Audrey No. Sound engineering is by Mark Bush. Our WeTransfer credit producer is Linda Mertens. Massive thank you to Sender Sound, our excellent studio in Amsterdam. And you can find us on all the usual Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. If there's anyone that you think we should interview, I would love to hear from you. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time. <laughs>